We all know about these accidental discoveries, penicillin, the heating power of microwaves, or the famous and delicious tarte tatin. I don't know why, but I just love serendipity. And as you'll hear, this episode is deliciously full of it. Thanks to Alison Hilger and Timo Rodger, we'll discover the world of linguistics, how Bayesian stats are helpful there, and how Paul Buchner's PRMS package has been instrumental in this field. To my surprise, and perhaps yours, the speech and language sciences are pretty quantitative and computational. As she recently discovered patient stats, Alison will also tell us about the challenges she's faced from advisors and reviewers during her PhD at Northwestern University and the advice she'd have for people in the same situation. Alison is now an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. The overall goal in her research is to improve our understanding of motor speech control processes in order to inform effective speech therapy treatments for improved speech naturalness and intelligibility. Alison also worked clinically as a speech language pathologist in Chicago for a year. As a new Colorado resident, her new hobbies include hiking, skiing, and biking, and then reading or going to dog parks when she's too tired. Holding a PhD in linguistics from the University of Cologne, Germany, Timo is an associate professor for linguistics at the University of Oslo, Norway. Timo tries to understand how people communicate their intentions using speech, how are speech signals retrieved, how do people learn and generalize. Timo is also committed to improving methodologies across the language sciences in light of the replication crisis, with a strong emphasis on open science. Most importantly, Timo loves hiking, watching movies, or even better, watching people play video games. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 40, recorded February 11, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.com. That's learnbasestats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. hello my dear patient friends i hope you are doing amazing here in europe we have summer coming up and bars and restaurants gradually reopening but that's not what i wanted to tell you what I wanted to tell you is that at the end of this episode, I put a five-minute extract of the second matchmaking dinner episode with Dimitri Pananos and Ravin Kumar. Our conversation spanned multiple topics, including how to improve stats education, what is it like to be a young academic these days, how to become better at practical implementation when coming from a theoretical background and vice versa, and much more. This is a series of shows I release exclusively for patrons of the show, so in case you didn't know what to expect, I wanted to give you a small preview, and then you can directly go to patreon.com slash learnbasedstats because you will immediately be seduced by Ravin's and Demetri's smooth voices and insightful conversation. So make sure to stick around until the end to get a glimpse of the Matchmaking Dinner series, and now... Let's talk about speech with Alison Hilger and Timo Rodger. Alison Hilger, Timo Rodger, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too because first, I know close to nothing to what you guys are doing in the speech and language sciences, so I'm going to learn a lot. And also, I have to say that this episode is deliciously full of serendipity. Because like, 
Alison, you started supporting the podcast on Patreon and then you reached out to me telling me that, oh, I should invite Paul Buechner, which I already did. And thanks to the magic of time travel, you will have listened to Paul's episode once your episode is out. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's going to be, it should be episode 35. And then you also recommended me Timo as a guest. So here we are. <laughs> so that's great. And I'm very happy to have you here too, Alison, because you have like interesting background and mentorship relationship with, with Timo. So we're going to dive into all that. But first, let's start with your background. Maybe Timo, how did you come to this speech sciences? What's your story? Yeah, well, I'm actually trained as a traditional linguist at the University of Cologne in Germany. And my first contact with, you know, language sciences was actually like a very inspiring young linguistic lecturer who told me all kinds of mind boggling things about human language. It turned out that most of these things range from, let's say, highly contested to simply not true. But he got me hooked for sure. And I kind of developed a taste for interdisciplinary approaches to language quite early on. I was always interested in the human mind as well. And there are kind of many different areas in linguistics, but I really fell in love with human speech. And I really don't know why. I guess it feels a little, it feels a little more tidy than other aspects of language. And it's inherently interdisciplinary. So, for example, you know, articulation, articulatory phonetics is very close to biology. Acoustic phonetics is very close to physics. Anything related to perception is at the heart of cognitive sciences. I ended up doing my PhD at phonetics department in Cologne, and I dived into experimental approaches to human sound systems. Yeah, a lovely time in Cologne. I went to do a postdoc at Northwestern University, just north of Chicago, and that's where I met Allison where I basically worked on psycholinguistic topics like real-time comprehension of speech. And I kind of developed my methodological identity there, if you want. I kind of saw what's going on at, uh, in a psychology disciplines, buzzword replication crisis. We will probably talk about it later a little bit. And, and at some point I was wondering, well, why is no one talking about these things in our field? And that's when I kind of developed this kind of meta-scientific profile, looking into scientific practices within and beyond linguistics. And yeah, continue to do that in Osnabrück in a cognitive science department. And last year I got a call, I got an offer from University of Oslo and here I am in my office right now in Oslo. Yeah, you guys are going to the office in Oslo. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> here we're still all remote, you know, so congrats on that. And thanks for this uh, very interesting introduction. So now I'm curious about Alison. How did you came doing what you're doing right now? Well, my goal in my undergrad, I did my undergraduate at the University of Illinois, and I wanted to become a speech-language pathologist, which is a, a person who works on communication. We try to rehab speech impairments from neurologic disorders, or we work with children who have developmental disabilities. So that my goal was to work clinically as a speech-language pathologist, but I got involved in a research project on sign language, and got really research was a lot of fun. I got really excited about it. So I continued for my master's. I got a clinical degree in speech-language pathology at Purdue University, worked clinically for a year, but I've always been interested in research. So I went to Northwestern for my PhD. I got my degree in a related field to TMOs, but more applied. It's called Communication Sciences and Disorders. So I did my PhD at Northwestern, and I, similar to Timo, I wanted to do this interdisciplinary project that looked at how speech is impacted from neurologic disorders, but also from a linguistics perspective. In my field, what is often missing is that like strong theoretical underpinnings, and linguistics has years and years of complex theories that have been built up. So I worked with Timo and his postdoc advisor, Jennifer Cole, on doing this project related with linguistics and neurogenic disorders. And that's where I got connected with Timo when I started trying to build these statistical models that just didn't quite work with frequentist models. And that's when Timo introduced me to Bayesian models. So my work, I'm at the University of Colorado now. I'm an assistant professor. My department is called Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences. And so we train speech pathology, undergraduate and graduate students. But my research looks at how speech is impacted from neurologic disorders and really a lot of aspects related to speech. So very interdisciplinary with linguistics, psychology, neuroscience, all these aspects. But it's a very applied field. Okay, yeah, fascinating. And let's talk a bit uh, more about that actually right now. But first, Timo, can you define the like the field of linguistics for us and like what are its main topics and characteristics? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will only do this wrong. All the people that are out there, linguists are probably hating me for my angle on this. But like plain and simple, I think we can all agree on that, that linguistics is the science of human language. And we try to answer questions like, how do human languages look like? How can they can they look like in principle? What properties do they share? How much can they differ? How do they differ, etc.? We're interested in how language signifies meaning and, and how language is used in its social and cultural context. So it's really inherently interdisciplinary, again, because and that is something that I love about linguistics. It's close to, for example, comparative biology and psychology. When we ask questions about how human language has evolved and, and how it differs from other animal communication systems, like how do bees communicate or other mammals, other primates. Linguistics is also close to the social sciences, of course, because language is a social vehicle that helps us express our identities and helps us bond with each other. And learning and using a language obviously involves many general cognitive processes such as attention, decision-making, memory, and so on. So it's, again, in its nature, it's very close to the cognitive neurosciences. So it's really an incredibly diverse field that, that touches on all kinds of aspects of being a human. Definitely. Yeah, that makes me think about all the stuff we're going to talk about afterwards. It's going to be super interesting. And maybe first, before that, Alison, can you also... Tell us whether you're working in the same field or is it a bit different from what Timoy is doing? Yes. So it's a very related field. Again, my field is more, I would say, clinically oriented to looking at how speech, language, and other areas are affected by either disorder, impairment, developmental disorder, and things like that. So, for example, there are a lot of people in my field who look at aphasia, which is a language disorder that's affected from stroke. And so that has a lot of linguistic implications. But my field is in the area of speech production. So I'm interested in how speech is impacted from neurologic impairment. My specific area is looking at ataxia, which is damage to the cerebellum, which affects speech production. And so, again, it's We, in our field, we use a lot of linguistic theory, a lot of psychological theory, a lot of neuroscience, but it's very applied to figure out how our speech, language, cognition, how are these impacted when there's some sort of disorder or impairment. So it's a fun field because we get to pull from these other very established fields and apply them to very real world concepts. But it also requires a lot of collaboration and knowledge across a lot of different fields, which can be tricky sometimes to try to find those experts who can help us out, you know, apply them to these disorders. Yeah, that's funny because it's like a blend of many interesting sciences. I love this. And like, I'm also very interested, like casually interested in cognitive sciences and so on. So, um, so uh, that's why I'm like very curious now to hear what you guys are working on. And also what I'm struck by, I think, is that you both are pretty quantitative and computational in your work. And well, also you're using Bayesian stats, so that's great. But <laughs> Timo, actually, do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods? And also, can you tell us why Bayesian stats are useful in speech and language sciences? Yeah, I mean, I remember quite vividly because I came from a place of pain before I developed my taste for Bayesian statistics. And I have to disappoint you immediately. I will not pretend that I made the switch to Bayesian statistics because of philosophical reasons. I made the switch out of pure pragmatic reasons. Sorry, not sorry, just being honest here. But I think this is kind of relatable to many people. So when I started Learn Statistics, yeah, there was this big paradigm shift in psychology and linguistics away from ANOVAs toward multi-level models. And linguistic data is often characterized by multiple sources of independence. First, in experiments, usually one participant produces multiple data points, but there's also, we use particular stimuli, words or sentences that are reacted to or produced by multiple people, by multiple participants. So that also fits quite well conceptually with what linguists actually want to do when they do experiments, what they do want to generalize toward. The population of interest is obviously language users, but also we want to know how the words and the sentences of an entire language work. So the fact that linguistic experiments and linguistics, they needed kind of crossed random effects was kind of a strong argument to adapt these multi-level models. It really swept quickly over our field within 
let's say, two to five years. And at the same time, R really took off as a statistical software of choice. So people ran these models using a particular R library developed by Douglas Bates and you know, very smart people, the LME4 package. And this package was notorious to not converge for these models. So the iterative optimization procedure didn't really arrive at a stable solution, so we literally couldn't trust its result, really. And this was particularly common for small data sets that are common linguistics at the time. So we knew what model specification we needed to not arrive at an anti-conservative estimate, but we just could not run these models. I was literally never able to run the models that I know I needed to answer my research questions. And it sucked. So I didn't trust my own results. I kind of left this intellectual vacuum. And after a couple of years of frustration and pain, someone recommended Bayesian models Stan, and shortly after, the BRMS library of Paul Bergner, and I was more than happy to try, and oh boy, did it change my life, really, my data analysis life. So it was really practical limitations that drove me into the Bayesian workflows, and now, literally, I can't imagine going back to frequentist approaches. So, and I think the reason for that is, in psycholinguistics in particular, we build models of linguistic representations that we we want to test on empirical observations. So we go out there, we observe, and then eventually we want to have a principled way to assess the individual parameters of our model in light of these observations, right? And quite frankly, Bayesian modeling allows us to do this in a straightforward way. And, and importantly, I think it does so also in an intuitive way which is important for fields like linguistics that doesn't really have limit like institutionalized statistical training. We're not formally trained usually. So this intuitive approach of Bayesian inference is helpful for people without that background. So a credible interval is what you think it is, right? Missing data can be dealt with easily. Evidence for the null can be assessed in a principled way, etc., etc. So beyond that, I think it allows us to formulate finally models of how observations come to be. Generative models become more and more relevant in our field. There's, there's an ongoing move in psycholinguistics to model linguistic behavior, say, I don't know, pragmatic inference or speech perception as rational inference under uncertainty. And some of my work touched on that as well. And it turns out that the way language users adapt to variable environments seems to be very elegantly modeled by simple Bayesian learner who integrates observed language input with their prior experience. So both, again, from a practical perspective of statistical inference and really from a theoretically driven perspective, thinking in a Bayesian way, well, strikes me as second nature for language scientists we just didn't know for a long time. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I love the way you presented that. And also just the fact that you were driven to these methods like from a practical point of view is also to me a very, very good point for patient methods because it's like maybe before, you know, in the 50s or else, you were driven by two patient methods from a philosophical standpoint, but it's because you had a lot of trouble to actually implement patient methods. Yeah, exactly. But now that we have very good Bayesian packages in standard programming languages like R, Python, you have Stan, in Julia, etc. It has become much, much easier to enable a lot of people who don't even have, as you said, institutionalized statistical training to do very state-of-the-art Bayesian methods and models. And then once you can do that, then you open kind of a, a Pandora box, you know, where you discover, oh, okay, but actually I can do that. And then the missing data can be added into the model and I can add these prior knowledge that we have. Oh, okay, that's great. And also uncertainty estimation. I mean, I was driven to Bayesian methods because it was very important for me to estimate uncertainty around my models. So I'm guessing that you also have these important fact that you have to estimate uncertainty because I'm guessing that you're also testing different hypotheses. So here, estimating uncertainty must be important. So yeah, definitely great. Thanks for this quick and very interesting summary. And now, actually, I want to turn to you, Alison, because you, Timo, has been working on that and being on this path for a while now, but you have recently discovered these methods. So can you tell us why actually you got into Bayesian analysis and the potential challenges that you faced from advisors and reviewers in the field in general, maybe? Yes, definitely. So, I mean, Timo talks about how in linguistics, a lot of people don't, there's not a strong push for a strong statistical background. In my field, we have 
very, very limited statistical background. We have to take stats 100 and then we get a Statistica or SPSS package and we're just taught to use the GUI and punch in the numbers. So we don't really learn a lot about the theory behind building these models. And even the idea of building a model for your data was kind of new to me. You know, my educational background of statistics was are these two numbers significantly different from each other? That's all I really cared about. I didn't really know what F meant. I didn't know what T meant. I didn't, all I wanted was that p-value. And so in my dissertation, I started getting into, I started creating these experiments that required a lot more complex models, even though I didn't really know that. I was doing this experiment where I was pulling out these acoustic features of speech. So things like pitch, intensity, duration, and... I knew enough about the statistics that I knew I shouldn't run separate models to look at each of these measures. I mean, they're related to each other. It's much better to model them all together because they're related. And it's just, why run three separate models when you can run one model that has the variance for all of these features together? But I could not figure out how to run a model that had multiple dependent variables and independent variables. So my first try at this was running a MANOVA in R. But I guess as Timo explained, that doesn't really account for random effects and for variance. And also the results are just very confusing to interpret. So it was just very messy. And I started looking at how else I can run a model with multiple dependent and independent variables. I found the R package MCMCGLMM. Tried to run that on my own. Had never heard of Bayesian statistics before that. I got the results, did not know how to interpret them. I was talking to some professors at Northwestern, and that's when I finally ran into Timo, and he introduced me to BRMS. It's much easier to run BRMS because it's very similar to LME4, as Timo was explaining. It all fit in well. Timo helped me interpret the results and develop some figures. And from there, I just, I've been applying it to my research and just realizing how simple it is. It's a lot easier to run, and like you said, results are much easier to interpret. My challenge is that it's just not very well known in my field. The funny thing is, is Paul Berkner published this wonderful paper in kind of our flagship journal, the Journal of Speech-Language Hearing Sciences. So he published this wonderful paper on how to use Bayesian statistics in our field. And I recently published a paper in that journal, and I cited that paper to say, look, these Bayesian methods do work in our field. And here's somebody who published this wonderful tutorial. And I still got pushback from reviewers of just like, why? It just seems like if you're going to use Bayesian statistics in our field, you have to justify why you're using that instead of in ANOVA or Frequentist models. So I do feel like I have to explain myself a little bit more, but there is some excitement. What I did present at a conference last February, right before the pandemic and quarantine, <laughs> and I presented and I did present Bayesian results and a little bit nervous to see how people would respond. And there's one researcher in our field, his name is Tim Marr, and he approached me afterwards and I was kind of expecting him to say, you ran those models wrong or something like that. But instead he was like, you use Bayesian statistics. That's amazing. It's so exciting. And so there are some of us in our field who are really excited about it. And I still feel like I'm trying to figure out whether I'm doing everything completely correctly, but I am excited about applying these models to my research. Yeah. Well, first I have to say, I find that very brave <laughs> from you. <laughs> uh, oh, because like, even seriously, because like, I know that peer pressure can be huge, especially in the business you guys are in. And so it's even more difficult in that case to, you know, to break the mold. And also for you, even it's also kind of hard because you're, as you said, you're not a trained statistician. So it's not like you're an expert in Bayesian statistics and you want, you're going into the field and just disrupting everything. So it's like you're learning that also by doing it. And at the same time, you also have to educate people. So yeah, it's very hard. And so uh, congrats on you doing that because I think it, it takes a lot of courage. And thank you, Timo, then, for, <laughs> for also introducing Alison to that. And Paul, if you're listening to us, of course, thank you for BRMS and all your educational work on that. Yeah, but that's really, I find this really very encouraging and inspiring. And so what I'd like to ask you, Alison, is maybe what would be your advice for people in your situation? And also if you have learning advice, <laughs> like educational resources that you found helpful. That's a really, really good question. My number one advice is to connect with other Bayesian statisticians in your field or maybe other fields as well. I think having Timo, somebody who I can trust and to write to, where I, I know he won't judge me for stupid questions or things like that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that is really nice because yeah. with everything, with, with any new scientific field that you kind of get into, there's a lot of just terminology you have to learn. There's a lot of jargon. So it's almost like learning a whole new language. And so that's kind of what I feel like. And I'll write to Timo and be like, what does this prior mean or things like that? And again, he doesn't judge me. So first I would recommend getting that community, which I think our podcast has a wonderful community on Slack. I'll just put a little plug in there. So I think those kind of communities are really important. (laughs) Thank you. But I guess for me, so I guess my learning experience was I found particularly BRMS and R helpful. So I started following Paul Berkner's work. He's published a lot of papers in a lot of different journals and he's really good at kind of applying Bayesian statistics to different fields and kind of molding them. So like in my field, he was able to write a paper about why this works in communication disorders. And so I think he's really good at that. So I like to follow Paul's work, but I've also bought a bunch of Bayesian books, which I have not gotten through yet. I bought Will Kurt's book. All right. Statistic, Bayesian statistics of Fenway, right? Yes, I'm on chapter four of that. So I'm working through those books and things like that. But I guess that's what I'd recommend. Finding a community, maybe finding a Bayesian statistician that you that fits with your work following how they write things up and maybe some of the, how they specify priors and then maybe finding some of these books. I also bought the regression book, which I don't have the title in front of me. Oh, right. Uh, Gelman, Vittori, and, and Hill, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's like a regression in other stories. Yes, exactly. So I'm working on kind of working my way through those, but those are my recommendations. Yeah. And, you know, imposter syndrome is always big in science. So just having the courage, like you said, to take a step out, try new things. You don't have to always be right. We don't all know what we're doing. Yeah, no, I mean, I love all of what you said. And this also resonates with how I went into Bayesian stats and, and learned on that. And the community part, is very, very important, I find, because like, it's a bit like what people say for Python, you came for the language and you stayed for the community. And it's like the same thing for me for Bayesian stats. And yeah, I discovered that the community is like super inclusive. And I think it's also partly due to the fact that most of the people in this field are not specialist at the beginning, you know, so it's like you have a lot of people who come and who don't know much at first, and then they just ramp up. And so that's great because then most of the community don't expect that you come and know already everything about the most important stuff, you know, and then just shame you because you don't know what's a hyper prior, you know, (laughs) or a Laplace distribution that it it really doesn't happen. And that's super important because as you said, Alison, then you you feel like you're in a place where you can feel comfortable asking what seems like stupid questions to you without fearing to be, well, shamed in public, (laughs) which is like actually one of the most important stuff to learn efficiently. So yeah, really, I completely second that. And and yeah, but the book, if people also want to go back to episode 16 with Wilkert, episode 20 with all the authors of uh, Regression and Other Stories, well, go ahead. And otherwise, Timo, yeah, I'd like to maybe ask you a bit about that, like how is it going in your field then? Because then I'm guessing that you're now kind of a Bayesian methods advocate. So how is this going for you? Do you have the same kind of the same hurdles with reviews and so on? Maybe quickly, if you can talk about that. Yeah, for me, it's a little different. In fact, I'm a novice as well. I mean, I have probably two or three years on Allison with regards to that. And every day I learn something new. So I'm, I'm still navigating it for myself. And I, I fully second this imposter syndrome problem. It's just there all the time. But I just try to ignore it and then just trying to write up my thoughts in a way that I think communicate well what the gist of things is and try to um, really sell to people why they should at least consider looking at this new method. Obviously, people are kind of fatigued by learning something, yet another new thing, right? And so you really have to convince them from a practical perspective again. It's very difficult to convince people with ideals. It very rarely works, it's slow. But if you tell them, look, you save time or you can actually run the models you want to run, you can do more with it. And suddenly you they, they listen. So yeah, I kind of have become an advocate probably for, for these methods. I've written a little tutorial with a colleague from Osnabrück, Michel Franke, that was received well by people because it was just yet another 
tutorial. There are many high-quality materials out there in, in paper form. There are great books out there. But sometimes it's important to hear it from someone in your field with an example from your field you can relate to. Yeah. And I'm trying that. And as an author, to be honest, I had smooth sailing so far with my evasion methods. And that is because probably good timing. Because the field just shifts into it right now. So most reviewers have not experienced these kind of models, they don't have experience themselves with it. So they tend to be on the cautious side and simply agree with me, which is sometimes intellectually a little unsatisfactory, right? Because as I said, there are probably many things wrong or there are debatable um, choices I make when I model my data. And I'd love to hear that to produce a better research product at the end of the day. But so far, my experience was actually rather smooth sailing with regards to these models and I'm applying them now for the last three or four years. So I haven't published a p-value in, I think, four years now, and that feels really good. Wow. Wow. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And actually, you talked a bit about that already, but uh, I'd like to ask that to my guests. What's your favorite technical stack when you work on Bayesian methods? Maybe, Timo, you can start. Uh, what, what exactly do you mean with technical stack? Like, what we use, actually? Well, you said you were using R and BRMS, I guess. So are you using that mainly and mostly? Or are you, are you also, I don't know, using Stan or PyMC or Julia? So yeah, no, I have, like, I know that I will have to come around and learn Julia because of its computational advantages, but I'm only fluent in R. So I'm using a BRMS on top of Stan. And usually because the models that I build, let's say the quantitative theory in our field is still so simple that Linear regression is all you need at the moment because we don't make too sophisticated probabilistic predictions about our data. So I'm using BRMS mostly. If I run into a wall, which happens occasionally, I actually hard code it in Stan. But yeah, mostly actually the lovely, lovely package by Paul Bergner, BRMS. I don't think I can't overstate how much of a service this package is for the entire field of, I don't know, like all of the fields related to cognitive sciences. He made it really easy for people to switch and to discover these new methods. And yeah, huge, huge thanks to you, Paul, if you're listening. Absolutely impossible to understate your contribution. Same for you, Alison. Yes, I R BRMS. Like I said, my first package in R was MCMCGLMM. But the, again, the beauty of BRMS is that it the syntax is very similar to LME4. So, and especially for specifying priors, I just... BRMS just makes a lot more sense to me. So very R BRMS. I have not ventured out to Python or Julia. It just like I think like Timo said, it's our models are a little bit more simple to run, and BRMS is very smooth. My only difficulty is I had to buy a computer that had a very strong processing core because some of my models <laughs> take like eight hours to run. Yeah. Well, great and. Yeah, if any of the people listening are thinking about uh, contributing to open source, you can check out BRMS. I'm sure Paul would be delighted to get some even more contributors. Okay, now let's turn more into what you guys are doing exactly, you know, precisely, because I want to know more. So can you maybe, can you walk us through an example of a nice Bayesian model that you used in your work and that shows us both how speech sciences can be helpful in general and also how Bayesian stats are used there. So maybe you can start by you, Timo, and then we'll go to Alison. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, as I said, the models are probably rather simple, but one, one example that comes to mind is a recent analysis that I did. So a while ago, seven years ago or so, I published a, an experiment, a speech production experiment that looked at a very controversial phenomenon. And it was controversial because the acoustic effect was small, and it was so small, in fact, that it's probably not reliably perceived by the human ear, right? And this is actually relevant because if you find that if fact that is below that threshold of what you can actually hear, the explanation can't be a communicative one, right? It needs to be something else. So that is actually theoretical important. And a colleague of mine used this phenomenon as a topic for a method class, and she let students replicate my experiment. However, not in a laboratory, but with every student, and there were a lot of them, like 70 or so, just literally going and recording a speaker in the wild with a recording device of their choosing, recording situation of their choosing, etc. So there was a lot of data, but the data was also very messy and variable 
due to variable recording situations, the amount of different experimenters, etc. So when analyzing the data, there were several challenges. So we needed to downweight these extreme observations that are likely due to bad recordings or literally just poor speech analysis by the students. We needed to account for the inherently nested design because the students were within that big class, were also in smaller groups in which they discussed their method and their analyses. So there was a dependence within that big class as a very nested design. And we needed to relate the results at the end to a perceptual threshold of what can be reliably perceived by people. So we didn't want to just test against a null hypothesis where we literally look at a point null, which is just not informative for anything. Uh, We needed to relate it to this threshold of perception. So we ended up running a multi-level linear regression to account for the nested generative model. And we used not so weakly informative priors actually to tidy up the data a little bit and define a a realm of plausible values to kind of kick out those values that are clearly measurement error. And then we estimated the plausibility of the posterior relative to that threshold of human perception in really in order to quantitatively predict the plausibility of these acoustic differences as as really driven by communicative needs. So that, that was cool because makes use of several strategies inherent to the, to the Bayesian mindset, but it also is very closely related to properties of our field, right? It's this relationship between measurement and really hard cutoff points of what human perceptual system can actually perceive. Yeah, very interesting application. And so maybe can you tell us in which respects uh, were Bayesian statistics most useful there for you to decipher all this? I mean, in the way that especially speech scientists, they know a lot about the system under investigation, right? This knowledge, for example, how acoustics maps onto perception, we can straightforwardly implement that into our model, right? And we wouldn't do that. We would not have the chance to do that when we operate in a frequentist, just like black or white hypothesis testing framework. Suddenly, with Bayesian, we can implement our prior knowledge and we can go away from just blindly testing hypotheses because Uh, There was a recent paper by Daniel Larkins and and his colleagues about why we should stop testing so many hypotheses because we we usually we don't know enough about the underlying system to actually make specific quantitative hypotheses that that are worth testing. And this is true for speech sciences as well. And with Bayesian parameter estimation, which is usually the way I use it, I'm not testing hypotheses usually anymore. Like We really don't have to really commit to full hypothesis testing framework and can, can more embrace the exploratory nature of our analyses and estimate our best guess of based on what we know and what we our prior beliefs, and we get a reasonable range of plausible values that reflects the uncertainty. And I think this is much closer to what linguistics and speech sciences can do at the moment with what they know about the systems they're researching. Okay, so very interesting. It sounds like to you the most important parts are one, the ability to introduce domain knowledge into the modeling, and also the generative modeling part. Like, very important to you. Okay, that's super interesting. Because it depends on the fields, you know. Some fields are interested more into... Some fields are really not into domain knowledge, you know. It's like, oh no, what's that prior stuff? It's it's cheating (laughs) and so on. But you are not, so that's interesting. And Alison, let's get back to you now. So do you have an, an example like that of a Bayesian model you used? And maybe even better would be one where Timo helped you discover Bayesian concepts. Yeah, so this is for my dissertation. So... Getting a little bit in the weeds of speech science, I was interested in how, (laughs) so when we talk, we hear our voice and we use that auditory feedback to adjust what we're saying or how we're talking. So I was interested in this area of speech called porosity, which is how we alter our pitch and loudness and duration to make speech interesting and to stress certain words and things like that. So, but the specific area that I was interested in is phrasal stress. So, you know, when we're talking, we stress certain words. And when we stress a word, it's relative to the other words in the phrase. So if I stress a word, it's higher pitch relative to the pitch of the other words or higher intensity relative to the other words. So I was interested in how we do this in online speech. So as I'm talking, I'm listening to my speech and how am I making those adjustments so that the stressed word is stressed above the other words. So I was able to experimentally manipulate this by put headphones on a participant, they're speaking into a microphone, and I feed their voice through the headphones, and I change the way they hear their own voice. I'm like manipulating their auditory feedback. 
So I, I changed the acoustics of the unstressed word to measure how they adjust the stressed word, if that makes sense. So I'm trying to see, are they going to make, are they going to increase the relative adjustment of the stressed word so that way it sounds stressed? And so that, that's the experiment. And so the outcomes I'm pulling out are these acoustic features of pitch, intensity, duration. And so what I needed was a model that incorporated all three of these features in relation to my experimental manipulations. So I have these three dependent variables, pitch, intensity, duration, with independent variables of these, what we call perturbations. But as Timo talked about, each speaker has their own unique speaking characteristics. So you can't just lump all these speakers together. You need to have some sort of random effect that accounts for individual speaker variants. So that's when I pulled Timo in. How, how do I model this? It's just the MANOVA was like just not complex enough to model all of these features together. So that's when he showed me BRMS. And I had my three dependent variables, I had my independent variables, and I modeled for participant variants. And I got my parameter estimates and my credible intervals. So yeah, that's kind of the model. That's the most model that I, recent model that I published as well. And the nice thing about it is it, it shows you, so for example, take pitch. It shows you what is the probability that pitch is going to increase after this manipulation and how different is that from zero. So you don't get the p-values to know how significant it is, but you can look at a figure and say, well, that's pretty far from zero. So there's a pretty high chance that a person is going to increase their pitch after they hear this perturbation. So the parameter estimates just really fit well with acoustic measures because you can, I don't know, map the acoustic, you just get more realistic numbers. You don't just get statistical output that doesn't really make sense. The output just makes sense with the acoustic units and things like that. So I guess that's the most recent model I ran. Yeah, so the ability to handle multiple subjects was very important to you. Yes. In this experiment. Okay. Definitely. Yes. And now I'm adapting that model for a, a group of people who have this disorder. And so as Timo was talking about with missing data, this is getting more and more important because a lot of my speech data, when you're working with people who have a speech impairment, a lot of the acoustic data just can't be analyzed because maybe it's just too noisy. And so you get a lot of missing variables, you get a lot more variance. And so I really think that Bayesian models are the best at controlling for all these variables. Okay. So what is your input data, by the way, in that in these cases? Are those like sound files or do you have like CSVs? I mean, I'm curious. They're CSVs. So I use this, sorry, we're using Audacity right now. And that is one type of acoustic yeah. software. I use acoustic software called Pratt. And it, it's really just beautiful at pulling out these acoustic measures in a very accurate way. So I get a CSV file of like, you get all these participants, all these trials. Like that's another thing with Bayesian models. We get a lot of trials, a lot of trials per participant when we run these experiments. And so we have mean FO, min FO, max FO, intense. So you just have all these acoustic variables for each trial, for each participant. Okay. Okay. And then you get your... CSVs or flat files that you can then use in the model. Okay. It's like a nerdy question, but it's like the modeler in me was like, okay, but what's my input? <laughs> oh. I know when, when I listen to old episodes, I feel like I need to visualize, like you said, like what the, what does the code look like? What does the input look like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And actually just another question completely uh, like related on what you were talking about, but it's not statistics, but I'm curious when you're doing these experiments, like trying to understand how people like prosody, I think you said the, the term is like understand how people stress words and so on. Do you do that with like, do you have to restrict the sample to being the same language? Because I'm thinking that if you take people from different languages, like for instance, if you take French people and compare them to Italian or Spanish people, I mean, Italian and Spanish, they stress the words much more than have a very musical language while French people are very, you know, monotonic and we don't stress words that much. That's why we have this weird accent in English, you know? And so I'm thinking if you do that, you have to take that into account in some way into the model. So just curious about that. What did you do there? Yeah, well, I'll start and then Timo can jump in. Yeah. Unfortunately, we do have to limit to, so like my studies, they all have to be native speakers of English. But even that, there's dialect. You know, in the United States, we have a lot of different dialects. But so everyone has to be a native speaker of English. So Timo could not participate in my study because he has a German accent. Sorry, Timo. 
Because <laughs> um, then there's a whole field of bilingualism that gets very complicated. You have to have all these different groups of participants who are monolinguals in each language, but also bilinguals in each language. It gets very complex because even your native language has an influence on your second language and your second language has an influence on your native language. It all affects speech production. But I'll let Timo jump into. Yeah, no, I mean, you said it all. I mean, usually we have the assumption that we describe a system that is related to one particular language, speaker community, or, you know, this particular variety. So usually, since, as you said, languages are so different on so many different levels as well, and we still don't know how that potentially influence how they are wired, right? We usually restrict ourselves to a certain demographic group, and then one very important characteristic of this group is the the native language and often also whether they're bilingual or not obviously nowadays it becomes more and more common that you know everyone is bilingual to some extent but you know they're trilingual etc so you kind of need to you restrict the messiness a little bit by uh, taking these factors out and controlling for them okay Thanks for indulging my <laughs> my nerdy curiosity. Let's continue with you, uh, Timo. And so you said earlier that most of the m the main type of models that are used in in speech sciences are generalized linear models. And now I'm wondering what are the most changing parts when you work with those kind of models. I don't know. Are they usually hard to fit, or are priors hard to choose? Like, what's usually your main problem? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, right, it's all linear regression, linear regression, linear regression, right? Human speech or speech representations, we still poorly understand. And, and we often like good quantitative models. So linear regression or generalized linear models there with Gaussian linking function is good enough for getting a better understanding of the probabilistic nature of the systems that we look at. And the only problem you might run in are all these dependencies that you need to take into account, like individual speakers make a big difference, but also individual stimuli you use, etc. Having said that, it's also pretty clear that these kind of simplified distributional assumptions about Gaussian linking functions just inadequate for our generative model. So, for example, something that's very common is that there are systematic individual differences between speakers and listeners. And they're not random. So the variance related to speakers is not Gaussian, but usually a mixture of multiple Gaussians because you literally have groups of participant speakers that, that show a certain behavior, right? And we can see that in our data if we have enough data. However, fitting mixture models is still a pain because if you want to make it converge, you need to have very, very strong priors. Uh, in fact, so strong that you kind of build what you want into the model. And they're computationally so costly, there are just practical limits to running these things. So it's like you see what, again, like similar to what I described earlier, you see what you need to do to have a better grasp of the, the underlying system and the generative model. You can't quite do it yet. Practical limitations here, resource limitations that still constrain what we're doing. And, and then there's obviously this, what I mentioned earlier, that just a poor understanding of the quantitative system underlying it that just constrains us as to how we can approach these questions. Yeah, sounds like also maybe hierarchical models will be very interesting yeah, in this in the future. So yeah, just before going to the reproducibility crisis, Timo, I just wanted to ask Alison quickly whether if she had to teach Bayesian methods, what does she think the essential skills would be important for students? So Alison, do you have something to add to that? Yes. So I would say Timo has talked about how the statistical concepts are very similar. So we could teach statistics in a very similar way, but just from a Bayesian standpoint. But one barrier in my field is just that people do not have a background in coding. I had to teach myself how to code and I still feel very elementary at it. So And there aren't really many GUIs for doing Bayesian statistics. And a lot of statistics are done with GUIs like SPSS or Statistica. So if people had a background in coding, maybe from undergraduate, if it was a required course, which I actually do think as science progresses in the world, it's, it does seem like coding is becoming a pretty essential skill to have. So if people had that foundation, then it would be much easier to jump into Bayesian statistics because you have the code in front of you and it all kind of fits together. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. 
Thanks for <laughs> talking <What>? to it. <laughs> you really see, you know, the background of the podcast there. Yeah, behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything is not going smoothly all the time. Yeah. So let's close up the show now talking about the reproducibility crisis because I know it's something you really care about, Timo. Not that there is a crisis, but that you want to be a part of the solution. And you talked about Daniel Lackens actually earlier in the show. And I had Daniel on the show on episode 18 and we talked about that, of course. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, uh, where do you think is the field of speech sciences in that regard? And maybe which progresses were done and what is still to do? Yeah, I think the language sciences in general and speech science in particular, they are slowly understanding that we can't look away that, that those challenges that that our neighbors in psychology for example are facing that that that's the same challenges that we are facing really i think uh, there are two big field specific challenges if you want so first many subdisciplines in linguistics inherently and, and also historically observational in nature fields like social linguistics corpus linguistics or, or descriptive linguistics they they actually only very few experimental subfields such as phonetics and psycholinguistics so traditionally, empirical linguistics is an exploratory field, not a confirmatory one. However, the publication culture across linguistic journals that has slowly started to follow trends from other empirical neighbors, like, you know, again, psychology. So observational exploratory studies are often framed as hypothesis testing to better fit into the kind of editorial expectations. And this obviously leads to a lot of overconfident and possibly misleading formulations of our scientific discoveries. Instead of exploring a system and generating hypotheses, which shall be tested on a new data set again, linguistics workflows often generate and test hypotheses within the same data set. And, and this obviously creates many false discoveries that we are overconfidently reporting and interpreting. So that's one problem that I think is very particular to our field. And it's, this is particularly dangerous in speech sciences because, well, you touched on that earlier, because how do you measure speech? There's so many different ways how to analyze an utterance. Speech is a multidimensional signal which is temporally expanded. You know, if I'm interested in whether speakers make an acoustic difference between, say, a question and a statement. Huh? Do I look at durational parameters, intensity, spectral parameters of the signal? Do I operationalize the acoustic dimensions by measuring them at a particular point in time or average them across a certain domain, like a specific word, a syllable, a word, and the whole utterance. These kind of thousands of degrees of freedom in measurement then are exponentiated by all the degrees of freedom during statistical analysis and so forth. So, so I'm worried that these dynamics interact with each other in a way that, that there are many published findings out there that it might not stand the test of time. But linguistics has also shown in the past that they adapt very quickly to these challenges. For example, statistical developments have been picked up in linguistics very quickly. So I'm very confident that we as a community can move forward. And we psychology did it now for 10 years, and it had a constructive and very productive discourse about what we can do to alleviate and to avoid the mistakes that our neighbors have made, like pre-registration, opening our data, sharing our code, replicating more. And I'm very confident that our field will adapt these things very quickly in their own terms. So I think we're in a good place, but it's still kind of an awakening at the moment, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, it seems like your field is, is moving very quickly, like between this reproducibility crisis awakening the, and switch to Bayesian methods. I mean, that is happening uh, over there. Yeah. Maybe it's a good time for PhD students to get in this field. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know where to find me. Yeah, exactly. And thanks for accepting the very hard challenge I gave you to summarize in less than five minutes the state of the reproducibility crisis in speech sciences. Uh, thanks a lot. Okay, guys, this was really a great conversation. I learned so much, but you know that before letting you go, I have to ask you two questions. I ask every guest at the end of the show. So if you had unlimited time and resources, which problems would you try to solve? Who wants to start? Alison is volunteering, I think. <laughs> I, could, I could start. <laughs> well. My research, I work with a lot of degenerative conditions like Parkinson's disease or spinocerebellar ataxia, ALS. And so 
And there's a lot of problems in the world, but that's kind of at the forefront of my mind is just, I get to, I see, I witness a lot of progression of these horrible diseases. And so I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know the biology behind these processes. So I, I don't know if I have the ability to say I develop a cure for these degenerative conditions, but I do wish there was a way. So for example, in speech therapy, we try to either maintain or slow the progression of the speech impairment. But I wish there was a way that we could regenerate brain processes so that we could help a person speak as they used to. So we call that the baseline. Like, how can we get, how can we help them have the same speaking characteristics that they had prior to the onset of this disease? And so if there's any way, if I could have unlimited time resources, maybe stop, cure these degenerative diseases or help regenerate processes that were lost because of the diseases. Yeah, fascinating. Thanks. And Timo, what about you? Yeah, I have to disappoint again. I probably don't have such a noble <laughs> goal. I think I'm a meta-scientist through and through now, I think. I'm kind of seeing what I want to do if I had unlimited time, if I weren't teaching and then I had like, all the resources that I need. I would try to build a system that allows us to connect the entire literature landscape in terms of its causal structure. So imagine a map that shows all proposed and observed causal links and, and non-causal links between concepts and observations. And links are associated with the evidential strength based on the methodological rigor, based on the data available, number of replications, etc. And you know, you could literally look at the map and see where we need to do work, where still work needs to be done and what resources need to be spent. So that's kind of a dream project I would uh, love to pursue. Yeah, I love that. I actually had something like that also in mind one day I was thinking about that, like, because I, I'm kind of tired of hearing in France, you have a lot of, I don't know, politicians or uh, people who have really a goal in mind, and then they just find one paper that says what they, it's when they care about papers, of course, but when they do, they just find one paper that goes in their direction and then say, oh, according to science, blah, blah, blah. And then I would always be like, that. yeah, but that's just, how do you prove that wrong? You know, you have to go and read all the literature. It's like, it's super hard. You know, it's super easy to make that kind of argument, but it's super hard to debunk. And I was like, oh, that would be so fun. You know, if you could just like have Google of, okay, yeah. we know that about these. Like, exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's do that, Timo. Next week, I have some free time. So if you want, we can get cracking. Good. Yeah, yeah. We can bang that out in February, probably. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Okay, second question, if you could have dinner and like dinner in person, you know, not remote dinner, <laughs> dinner with a great, with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? So Alison, let's start by you again. So this is very, very field specific and she is alive and she actually pr probably would have dinner with me. So her name is Kathy Yorkson. She's like one of the matriarchs of our field. Her research in the 90s and 2000s, she's the one who's really established dysarthria, speech impairment subtypes, which we call dysarthria. And I think what I really love about her research is that she doesn't just look at the speech impairment, she looks at how it affects quality of life and how people communicate. So it's like, it's a very holistic perspective. And I just, I find that to be a very empathetic and compassionate perspective with science. And so again, she is alive, she's retired now, but I would love to have dinner with Kathy Yorkston if you want to have dinner with me. I don't know if she's listening, but she yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, d I doubt she listens to Learning Vision Statistics, but if you do, Kathy, like I'd be happy to make introductions. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and Timo, what about you? Yeah, yeah, that's a tough question though, because like, Many of those really brilliant minds from history might be a really, really awkward dinner partner, I think. Yes. <laughs> I really don't know. Uh, maybe Richard Feynman. He's obviously a brilliant mind and had an exciting life. I mean, he was part of the Manhattan Project. What was that like? You know, the entire psychological trauma he took from that, probably developing such a powerful weapon. Um, yeah, I think he would be an interesting, worth an interesting evening. <laughs> and he seemed uh, pretty fun too, so. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he's definitely a, a top choice uh, for this question, so. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, he often comes back. Well, Alison, Timo, Thank you for this fascinating conversation. Again, I learned a lot about how speech works, about the state of language sciences and how patients that are helpful there. This is really a really, really interesting topic and field. So thanks a lot for being here. As usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. 
thank you again, Alison and Timo, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you, Alex. Awesome. Thank you, Alex, for having us and for doing this for the community. Right, We had this topic earlier, and it's incredible that you do that for people that want to get into Bayesian statistics and it's a great resource. Thanks for that. Yeah. And I will say, as I binged this podcast over the summer, so it's a little surreal to be on it, <laughs> to be on it and see you. And then it's fun. So thank you for having me be part of it. <laughs> it's really fun to be a part of this community. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, guys. I like, I really, really appreciate uh, you saying that. And uh, that's really, it also keeps me going. And yeah, well, you had the whole behind the scenes experience. Alison, it's exciting. So <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Okay, guys, uh, thank you. Take care. Stay safe until we're all vaccinated and hope to see you one day in person. Sounds good. Great. Thanks, Alex. Bye. 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 Dimitri, can you quickly introduce yourself again for listeners? Yeah, sure. My name is uh, Dimitri. I am a PhD candidate in biostatistics at Western University in Ontario, Canada. In 2019, I was a Google Summer of Code uh, student. I helped write, well, actually, I didn't help write. I wrote a lot of differential equation for PyMC3. And I tweet a lot about stats. I think that's what I'm probably most known for. Statistics uh, Twitter. Okay. And so you're in Ontario right now, right? Yeah, Ontario, Canada. It's like southwestern Ontario. If you guys are ever uh, near Toronto, just uh, let me know and I'll uh, drop by for a visit. Oh, yeah, definitely. Will do. Once we can travel again, yeah, <laughs> I will. I heard Toronto is a fantastic city, so I definitely will. How is the COVID stuff treating you, by the way, over there? Still in lockdown or? Yeah, well, I think we're all just being very careful. It's been a year now, so I'm pretty used to it. Got my own little schedule going and uh, surviving, surviving. Yeah. What would you say have been... Okay, we're already going off script now. But um, <laughs> what would you say have been the most, the biggest change for you in your in your life here, and the biggest challenge that you have had to adapt to? Oh my God, we just started. Easy with the, <laughs> the heavy questions, like no. yeah. Uh, okay, the, it can be anything, you know. But I'm wondering, you know, because like at the beginning, everybody was freaking out because of the oh my God, I can't work from home all the time, blah blah blah. And I'm actually now wondering if this was really the main difficulty for people, or if it was other stuff, you know, the fact of not having social interactions in person and so on. Okay, so I'll tell you what. I recently got a dog, so that that would probably be the biggest one. But I'll but prior to that, I don't know. The biggest challenge I really wanted to just hang out with people. I thought to myself, like I'm a, like a pretty not very social guy. Uh, I work at home a lot um, as it is. Even in normal times, I think I can weather the storm. But oh my god, like I would pay like fifty dollars if I could just sit in a bar and have a beer. Like even by you know what I mean, just so I could like have that experience again. So. It's been very odd not being able to just interact with people in the ways which I used to, that that really came to wear on me and still wears on me. But I think that was the hardest part. Yeah, well, I definitely agree with that. It's been the hardest part for me too. And where I can see that is that now, sometimes I think about people I, I'm not getting along very well with, and I'm still thinking, but I would very much have a beer with him. like. <laughs> Tonight, you know, <laughs> whereas before I would have been like, oh, no, I'd much rather have a beer with uh, this guy who I get along with better. But that's where you can see that you're missing that part of life. Uh, and Ravin, what about you? So first, let's introduce yourself again to listeners. And also then you can answer the same question I asked to Dimitri. Sure. I'm, uh, so I'm Ravin. I guess I'm now a data scientist, although I had a really long walk over a decade to get here. I guess technically I work for Prime Sales right now. Actually, I do work for Prime Sales right now. I guess it's the first place I'm going to announce it publicly, but I'm going to be working at Google two weeks from now. I'm going to start soon. Dude, what? Yeah, so that's my that's my new one. Hey, Thank you, Dimitri. Right. Yeah. I'm clapping, so everybody can't see, but I'm clapping. Yeah, yeah me too, me too. Well done. Oh, is not clapping on the inside now. Although I know he's frustrated that he just left his job and joined Prime Sales full-time, and right as he got in, I bounced out. Yeah. <laughs> the time... The day I join PyMC Labs officially, full-time, Ravin announces that he's going to work for Google. So, I mean, the, the, the DAG is pretty clear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, so I'm a, bit, I'm a bit disappointed with myself, you know. Well, no, Luciano, our, also our PyMC3 colleague between the three of us, he also joined the same PyMC Labs full-time the same day. So you don't know 
Alex, whether you were the causal factor or it was him. It wasn't as controlled of his experiment as you'd hoped. You're right. Let's put everything on Luciano's back. That's much better. He's not there to defend himself. Yeah, but you see, Dimitri, learn base stats is the place where people announce stuff to the world. That's where you get breaking news. So it's like, it's basically the CNN of the stats world. I'd oh. say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That's good. To, well, when I have some breaking news, I'll come back on the podcast and let everybody know. Yeah, you definitely have to. No, but uh, yeah, again, congrats, Ravin. This is really awesome for you. And you are not going to dodge that question. What has been the biggest challenge for you during COVID times? So again, it's hard to say because last year was a pretty wild year in America. So, I, But I, I think being able to go and see people, there's like one thing I've been fixating on. I don't know why. But like, I really just want to go eat like a fried, or actually I've decided that once everything's open, I'm just going to eat a fried chicken sandwich at like multiple restaurants over the course of like, I have it like mapped out of my head, the walk I'm going to take to all these like places and just eat fried chicken sandwiches everywhere. And I don't know why that's the thing, but that is like the thing I'm going to do. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or purchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbasedstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.